Well, it is good to see you this morning. I'll tell you, um, this has been a tiring last few days for me. Uh, the last few days, my wife, Hannah, has been out of town with our daughter, Abigail, thankfully, but I had the three older kids. And so I'm exhausted. I'm glad just to be here. I'm glad to be in something other than pajamas for most of the day, um, and uh, I'm excited to be around a group of adults. This is fantastic. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. I'm going to throw a little party this afternoon when Hannah gets home, and um, it's just going to be a great time. Uh, but uh, it just, it's an illustration of the busyness of this season, right? Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that this time of year is a busy time of year. Many of you I know, as the video said, you've got upcoming vacations, uh, you've got graduation parties. Uh, we had Mother's Day a few weeks ago. Father's Day is approaching. Memorial Day is upcoming. And we've got, it's just a busy time. Lots of holidays, lots of reasons to celebrate. And with lots of reasons to celebrate, it's also a season of gift giving. It's a season of gift giving. Uh, my wife has told me in the past that she struggles knowing what to buy me for gifts. Um, uh, she says that it's difficult to know what to buy me because she thinks I've got everything I need. Um, and um, I don't know what's so hard about it because if you've been here the last several weeks, you know that I like Nordstrom's and that I like phony gift cards, right? You've probably received those emails. So I don't know what the, the difficulty is, but um, you can probably relate. You probably have somebody in your family, a friend or two, and uh, when it's their birthday or whatever holiday, you just don't know what to get them. It's a challenge to know what to give a man or a woman who seemingly has everything. But the question we want to look at this morning is a more difficult question, and that is, what do we give to a God who has everything? Truly, the God that we worship is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the creator of all that there is. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and so what do you give to God, who has everything. And to answer that question, I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, as we wrap up this sermon series focused in on what it is to exalt God. As you're turning to John 4, let me remind you that uh, the mission of Grace Bible Church is to equip you with the truth so you go out and engage people with the goodness of God and the gospel, and then we come back together every week and exalt God, worship him for who he is and for what he's been doing. And for the last several weeks, we've been building this idea of exactly what it is to exalt God. We've talked about, we need to remember that Jesus is risen. It all starts with that. Uh, then the week after that, we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, and we saw uh, the difference between a holy God and sinful people, and the only way to bridge that gap is through the atoning work of Jesus. The week after that, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we were reminded of uh, the need for us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then from Philippians chapter 4, uh, we talked about the word celebrate that we need to rejoice in and celebrate the good things that God has done. Last week, we looked at Hebrews 10 and we hit the idea of community, the importance of gathering together as a body of Christ. And this week, to finalize this sermon series, we're gonna focus in on this idea of worship. The reason we come together, ultimately, to exalt God is ultimately 
to worship him. And that's what we see here in John chapter 4. You can see there in your bulletin, I've given you an outline for the message this morning. We're going to enter into this conversation, this one-on-one conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. This is probably my favorite conversation in the Bible. There's just so much here. And we see this conversation, this back and forth take place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And we're going to see this conversation really in two parts in verses 1 through 26. First, we're going to see Jesus engage in conversation with this woman, and he's seeking water. He's thirsty. He has had a busy week, and he's weary from the journey. And so he needs a little water for refreshment. But then he shifts the conversation And he's talking second about seeking worshipers. What God really wants, what you give the God who has everything, is God is seeking worshipers. And then number three on your outline, we'll talk a little bit about application and how these ideas come together for us. So let's look first on your outline number one, enter into this conversation Jesus has with the Samaritan woman and seeking water. Let me read for you first verses one through six, which establishes the context for us. John chapter four, verses one through six. Let me read these for you. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he, Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from the journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So again, verses one through six really are the background, the context, the setting of this conversation that's about to take place. There's a couple things here in the first six verses that I want you to see. Um, First, we see there in verse one that uh, the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making all these disciples. And so already at this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus' popularity is getting higher and higher. And with that, his opposition from the Pharisees is also increasing. So this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees is already developing here at this point in the Gospel of John. And so as a result of this conflict, of this tension, John tells us that Jesus decides to move from Judea down in the south up to Galilee in the north. And remember, Galilee is really the base of operations of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus decides to travel from south to north, and then I want you to notice verse 4. As Jesus is working his way from south to north, John tells us he had to pass through Samaria. So there was a region between Judea and Galilee, and it was the region of Samaria. And John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, this was not the most common way to get a Jew from Judea to Samaria because the problem with cutting from Judea to Samaria, the most direct route was you had to go, or from Judea to Galilee, was you had to pass through Samaria. And that's where the Samaritans were, right? If you know the background and the context, the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. 
For years, they could not get along. They could not agree. And there's a couple things I want you to know about the Samaritans as a group of people that's going to be very helpful as we keep reading these verses. Uh, The first thing is that the Samaritans were worshipers, right? It's not like they were completely pagan people. They did have a faith. And what I want you to know about their faith is that it really was centered on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses. They believed in and only believed in those first five books. So everything else they rejected. And because they believed in only the first five books of the Old Testament, they rejected when David, remembered, moved the capital to Jerusalem. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritan people rejected all of that. And so they had a temple at Mount Gerizim. And these are details in the story that you need to understand that are going to make more sense in here in just a bit. But the Samaritans were worshiping people. They believed in the first five books of our Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah. And they worshiped at a temple at a location called Mount Gerizim. These are all real important details for you to know. Uh, But John tells us here that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So Jesus, as he's journeying from Judea to Galilee, as he's making that south to north journey, he doesn't take the bypass route, which was normal, but he cuts straight through. He cuts straight through the heart of enemy territory. And it's on that journey through Samaria, notice what happens, verses 5 and 6, he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, this is in the book of Genesis, and Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, Jesus intentionally comes now to this site of common ground, the Jacob's well. And John tells us Jesus comes there at about the sixth hour, which depending on if he's talking Jewish way of counting time or Roman way of counting time, it was either noon or 6 p.m. The point I think we're supposed to understand is that it's hot. And Jesus is weary from his journey. And so he goes to the well in order to get something to drink. And with that background, that setting, that context, let's look at verse 7 and 8 and see what happens. John tells us that while Jesus is there at the well, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So picture this in your mind. Jesus is there. He's weary. He's had a long day. It's hot outside. And he's sitting there at Jacob's well, and up approaches a Samaritan woman. John tells us that Jesus' disciples have left. So Jesus is now there alone at Jacob's well. It's just him and the Samaritan woman as far as we know. And this would have been a bit of a surprise because Jewish men and Samaritan women didn't really get together very often. 
at all. And so Jesus does something rather surprising and shocking here. He actually speaks to this Samaritan woman, and he, he says to her, give me a drink. And this shocking statement of Jesus, that he would dare even engage in conversation with this woman, notice the surprise of the Samaritan woman that we see in verse 9. Therefore, John says, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, here's her reply, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? So again, notice the woman's surprise. She comes to the well, she sees a Jewish man there, and this Jewish man actually has the audacity to engage her in conversation. And so she says, hey, how is it that you being a Jew would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then John tells us that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you have an NIV Bible, there's probably a footnote that says Jews don't touch the vessels or use the vessels or the dishes that Samaritans have used. And this was certainly true. Uh, one of the teachings of the Pharisees in Jesus' day is that Samaritan women were perpetually unclean. They were permanently unclean. And so by touching a vessel that a Samaritan woman had touched, you too as a Jewish man would become unclean. And so this woman is shocked that Jesus would dare ask her a question, and then actually be willing to drink from the same vessel, the same cup, which she used to draw the water. So notice Jesus' reply. Verse 10, John tells us, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus continues to engage in conversation with her. She's surprised that Jesus would actually drink from the same vessel as, as she's holding. And to her surprise, Jesus says, listen, if you knew who you were talking to, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, then you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now, living water, um, I want you to understand that in the ancient Near East, in the land of Israel in the first century, uh, you probably know there wasn't running water, right? You can go to the faucet and turn on a tap and, and get some, some drinkable water. Drinkable water was sometimes very difficult to come by. And so they got very creative in how they would have water that you could drink. One of the ways is you would just collect water in what was called a cistern, uh, basically a holding tank. Another way people got water uh, was through springs. Uh, you'd go to a spring, a natural spring, and you can get water that way. Uh, you would go to a well, like what we see here. Uh, but the best kind of water is what was actually called living water. Living water was water that flowed. So maybe it flowed out of a well, maybe it flowed out of a spring, maybe it flowed in a river, but the best and most drinkable type of water was living water. And so on the surface, when Jesus says, listen, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water, this is probably what first came to the Samaritan's woman mind. She's thinking we're having a conversation about actual water. 
Because notice how she replies to Jesus. She replies to Jesus in verse 11. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the water is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons at his cattle? So she's confused. She says, Jesus, wait a second. Um, you don't have a vessel. Where are you going to get this so-called living water? And again, she thinks Jesus is talking about physical water, but what you need to understand um, is throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New, that phrase living water carries a deeper meaning. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, you see that God himself is described as living water. In the Gospel of John, you see this idea of living water connected to the Holy Spirit and to the life-giving Holy Spirit uh, that I think Jesus is talking about here. So on the surface, Jesus and this woman are engaging in conversation about Jesus seeking some water. He's thirsty. But Jesus is beginning to get below the surface, if you will. And he's now beginning to engage this woman in conversation about the life-giving water that only God, that only the Holy Spirit can bring. Notice for example, verses 13 and 14, as he replies back to her, Jesus answered and said to her again, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Notice again the shift that Jesus is beginning to make here. He's no longer talking about just being thirsty. He's no longer talking about seeking physical water. He's talking about seeking spiritual water. That eternal life, that life from the Spirit that wells up in a person. But she doesn't quite get it yet. Notice verse 15. She says back to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She says, all right, this living water you're talking about that will make me never be thirsty again. Give me some of that. I, I want some of that. And notice Jesus says to her, verse 16, he said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Go, call your husband and come here. Now remember, it would have been a bit surprising for a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman to be even seen, to be seen together to be engaging in conversation with one another. And so Jesus says to her, listen, go get your husband. But again, Jesus knows something a little deeper that she doesn't know. He knows all about her circumstances. And so when Jesus says to her, hey, go get your husband, come back, and we'll have a conversation, notice her reply. Verse 17 says, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now here Jesus is getting truly to the heart of the matter. He knew, of course, this woman's circumstances. And suddenly, I think this woman realizes that this man, 
whom she has never met before. This man with whom's path they have never crossed suddenly has insight that he should not have. He knows something deep about her that he should not have known. By the way, we don't know all of the circumstances of this woman. Um, It's often to hear it said that she's a prostitute or something like that. The text doesn't say that. We don't know all of the circumstances that led to this woman being married so many times. We simply don't know. Uh, Later in the chapter, she does go into the town of Sychar and she says, listen, this man told me everything I've ever done. And I think implied in that is she does carry some guilt and some responsibility for her circumstances. But we simply don't know. And let's not read too much into the text. Um, But I love the back and forth that Jesus has with this woman as we kind of take a step back from these verses. One of the reasons why I love this passage so much, other than the fact that it was depicted very well in The Chosen, and if you've not seen that, you need to. Um, But I love the toughness and the tenderness in the back and forth that Jesus has with this woman. I want you to notice his tenderness with her. I mean, he's engaging her in conversation, something that normally would not have been done. He's very tender with her, but at the same time, he's not afraid to confront some of the more difficult issues going on in her life. He's not afraid to call out the sinful circumstances in which she's in, right? I love the the toughness and the tenderness of Jesus that we see here in this passage. But so far, up until this point, the Samaritan woman thought that they were talking about water. But now a transition takes place, and as we look at number two on your outline, we see that what Jesus is ultimately getting at what we're really talking about here is not just seeking water, but seeking worshipers. What do you give to the God who has everything? Well, let's find the answer here as we look at number two on your outline. Let me read for you John chapter four, starting in verses 19 and 20. The woman now says, To him, sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) She realizes again that Jesus knows way too much about her in order to just be a common man. She comes to the conclusion that this man in front of her here at the well, the one asking her for a drink, is much more significant than just an everyday common man. She concludes this man must be a prophet. He must be here on behalf of God because he knows all of this stuff about me. He knows about my multiple marriages. He knows about my present situation. So she correctly concludes uh, this guy must be a prophet. And so then she turns to Jesus in order to settle a historically significant dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans. Notice her question in verse 20. Recognizing Jesus as a prophet, she says, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So again, let's pause right here for just a second. Remember what I told you about the Samaritan people. They were people who worshiped. They thought that they were the true and genuine heirs of of Jacob and Joseph, that they were the true Israelites. 
They believed this because they accepted only the first five books of our Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. And so they rejected anything after that that took place. And so they set up a temple there in Samaria on the side of Mount Gerizim. And because of that, obviously, an immediate difference emerged between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. And it really centered on that question of where is the true temple? Where is the true place of worship? Is it in Jerusalem, where the Jewish people say it is? Or is it in Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans say it is? And so this woman presents this question to Jesus. Where is the true site? Of worship. And notice verses 21 and 22, Jesus' reply to her. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, he says. We, Jewish people, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Let's pause again right here. Notice, once again, the toughness and the tenderness of Jesus we see here as he's engaging in, the, uh, with, in conversation with the Samaritan woman. The toughness and the tenderness. He isn't willing to correct her bad theology, right? He says, listen, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. To paraphrase, you guys are wrong. Uh, the site of worship is not Mount Gerizim. But then also notice a little tenderness in Jesus. He also steps in and says, listen, an hour is coming when people aren't going to worship in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. And this, I think, stimulates this woman's thinking. She wants to know a little bit more. Again, verses 21 and 22, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the heart of the question, when the woman asks Jesus, okay, where is the true site of worship, Mount Gerizim or Mount Jerusalem? What we're really getting at is what is true worship? What is the type of worship that God accepts? And Jesus lays out the surprising statement that God is spirit, and true worshipers are not going to worship at Mount Gerizim or at Jerusalem, but true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. In other words, he says to the Samaritan woman, listen, you don't have to go to Gerizim to truly worship God, and you don't have to go to Jerusalem to truly worship God. Although, if you come with me on this upcoming trip to Israel, it will certainly help. <laughs> uh, not really. Um, we're going to come back to these verses in just a bit, because this is really the heart at what I want you to see here this morning. But let's first see how uh, this conversation continues to play out in verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when that one comes... He will declare all things to us. 
Now, once again, the Samaritans believed in the Pentateuch, the Torah. And so they believed in a coming Messiah. They believed in the anointed one, the Christ. They just had an incomplete view of who he was because they rejected the other books. And so she has an understanding of who the Messiah is and what he's going to do. And she says to Jesus, listen, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll declare or he'll explain all things to us. And Jesus, verse 26, says to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. This is truly remarkable, by the way. Again, when you consider the context and the culture of the day, that Jesus would disclose himself as the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, not only to a woman, but to a Samaritan woman. Jesus is indeed crossing many different boundaries here in this conversation. A Jew addressing a Samaritan, a man addressing a woman, this would have been an entirely shocking statement. And as the passage plays out, we see that this woman comes to believe who Jesus is. Um, I'd encourage you later today to keep reading into chapter 4, and we see uh, how the the people of Samaria respond in faith to who Jesus is. Uh, But what I want you to see, what we're going to focus in on here is, again, notice the shift in conversation that's taking place. Jesus began by seeking water, But then he shifts the conversation, and now he shows that God ultimately is seeking worshipers. And that's really the heart of the conversation that Jesus has with this woman, and it's really the heart of what I want us to look at together this morning. So let's look at number three on your outline. As we bring this sermon series of what it is to exalt God to a close, I want us to focus in on this idea of spirit and truth. Let me read for you once again, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I'm going to make an assumption about you this morning by nature of the fact that you're here or watching online. And my assumption is that some part of you, if not all of you, wants to know really what it is to worship God. Why are we here? We, We want to know what it is to be a true worshiper of God. What is the kind of worship that God accepts? What do you give to God who has everything? And we see the answer here. There's a couple major words that I want you to see here in these verses. Uh, The first big word I want you to see is that word seeks. That word seeks. Um, Jesus says there in verse 23, the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. The Father seeks out people to be his worshipers. He's actively seeking people out. This is truly a remarkable thought, that God is seeking people out for worship. This is not, however, a vain attempt at an egotistical God to get people to like him. That's not what this is about at all. Sometimes you hear that Uh, among unbelievers, you know, who is this God who demands worship and isn't that self-serving and selfish? 
But the reason God is seeking people out to be his worshipers is really because that's where the joy and true fulfillment in life is found. That's where true joy and true fulfillment in life is found is when we realize what we were created to do and we do that. The reason God is seeking people out to be his worshipers is because ultimately we were made for him. And he wants us to realize the the purpose of our very existence. The first thing I want you to see in this passage, ladies and gentlemen, is is that God is seeking you out. He is seeking out a personal relationship with you. The first thing we see is that word seek, that God is seeking you out. He's seeking me out. The second word I want you to see is the word worship. This entire passage is really framed by this idea of worship. Uh, Jesus says again, verse 22, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. Verse 23 says, uh, true worshipers, Genuine worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We see this word worshiped emphasized a number of times. Worship, simply put, is simply ascribing worth to someone or something. It's ascribing worth to someone or something. So when we sing, when we pray, when we give, when we study our Bible, uh, we are ascribing worth to the one who created us. We're ascribing worth to him. But here's the catch. Everybody ultimately is a worshiper. Everybody ultimately is a worshiper. The question is not, are you a worshiper? The question is, what or whom are you worshiping? Uh, there's a, a theologian, actually Greek Orthodox, you can probably count on one hand of the number of times I'll quote, quote a Greek Orthodox guy, but um, uh, he says that our primary identity is not homo sapien, but homo adoran, or beings who adore beings who worship. And no matter who you are, no matter what your background, uh, we are beings who adore. We are beings who worship. God is seeking worshipers, and you and I, our primary identity is that of a worshiper. So if God is seeking worshipers, and if you and I are created to be worshipers, then what is that connection point between a God who is holy and people who are designed to worship? And that's where I want you to look at the third phrase there, The third major idea here in these verses, it's that phrase, in spirit and truth. The connection point between God and people who were created to worship is this phrase, in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Now again, as a little bit of background for just a minute. Worship or spirituality in the first century really revolved around two major concepts, the Torah and the temple. Even among Samaritans and Jews, they would agree that true spirituality revolved around the Torah and the temple. Now, for the Samaritans, the temple was in Mount Gerizim. For the Jewish people, the temple was in Jerusalem. But they agreed that the temple is the place, the primary place you go to worship. 
They also agreed on the importance of the Torah, the first five books. Now, again, the Jewish people, for the most part, uh, included the other books of the Old Testament, but they agreed on the importance of the Torah, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. And Hebrew spirituality and Samaritan spirituality or worship centered in on those two ideas, the temple and the Torah. But now what Jesus says, notice here, that worship, true worship, is no longer going to be centered in the temple and in the Torah, but in spirit and in truth. True spirituality, true worship is no longer going to be confined by the temple and the Torah, but in the spirit and truth. And so there is something kind of nerdy and, 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 and you know, uh, in terms of grammar that you need to understand here, so bear with me. Um, notice the phrase, in spirit and truth, that we see in verse 23 and 24. There's two nouns and one preposition. You see that? In, that's the preposition, spirit and truth, those are the two nouns. This is super nerdy, super technical. I'll spare you all the details, but Greek is a very precise language. It's two nouns governed by one preposition, and, and what that is saying is that these two ideas are inseparable. They go together. You can't separate them out. So true worship, the connection point, is spirit and truth going together. Spirit and truth going together. Uh, between services, I thought of this analogy. I didn't share with the first service. Maybe this is helpful. When you plug in an, uh, a plug into an outlet, there's two prongs, right? If you want to tap into the electricity in the wall, there's a two-pronged outlet, and you have to have both. It's the same idea here. Spirit and truth go together if you want to tap into the type of worship Jesus is describing in this passage. So let's talk about each idea separately, and then we'll talk about how they come together. Uh, first, that word spirit. There's a tremendous debate about um, is the spirit Jesus is talking about here the human spirit or the Holy Spirit? Um, I think uh, he says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit. So I do think the idea of the human spirit is there, that the human spirit and God who is spirit come together and meet one another in the realm of the spirit. Now, theologically, all of this is possible because of the Holy Spirit, right? It, this connection wouldn't be possible between God the Spirit and the human spirit if the Holy Spirit wasn't involved. Um, but the, the idea, what I want you to see here is that, um, is that the, the worship of God is connected in here in the realm of the Spirit. But the second idea is also true, that it also includes the truth that our worship of God is this connection point between our spirit and God's spirit, but it's also a connection point of truth. Notice again, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And you can't have one without the other. This is why the next sermon series is gonna be preaching through our doctrinal statement, because we need to know what we believe. And you need to know what the elders of this church have said. Hey, this is the truth that we believe here. Real worship, true worshipers, should not require us to turn off our minds. But true worship is centered in truth. So these are the two separate ideas. Let's talk about how they work together in spirit and in truth. 
When Jesus says true worshipers, when he's describing true worship, genuine worship, the type of gift God is desiring, the type of people God is seeking, it's when our brains and our hearts are connected. When our theology and our doxology, our praise, come together. It's this idea that how we worship has to be informed by good theology. And our theology needs to be reflected in how we worship. Uh, To summarize it, I like how John Piper puts this. He says, worship must have a heart and a head. Worship must engage emotions and thought. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy. And on the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and shallow people. He says, but true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional. We love God to the core of our being. And we also love sound doctrine. He says, strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. The question this morning that I've posed is what do we give to the God who has everything? We see here in John 4 that God is seeking out people who worship in our heads and in our hearts, in spirit and in truth. And so what I want you to do there on your outline on the back side, you can see some application questions for this week to dig in a little deeper. Uh, But your one thing for this week is this. In this passage, Jesus emphasizes spirit and truth and this combination of the two for worship, for genuine worship, true worship. But the question I want you to ask is how do you assess the health of your own spiritual life? in that spirit and truth category? How do you need to grow in your relationship with the Lord and what is God asking you specifically to do from this passage? You know, it is hard, I suppose, to know what to give to the man who has everything. But an even more difficult question is what do we give to our God who has everything? And I love that here in John chapter 4, we get the answer. What God wants, what he's seeking, what you and I can give is to worship him in spirit and truth, theology and worship, dogmatics and doxology, which are a fitting gift for our great God. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that you have sought out a relationship with us. Uh, Father, thank you that you have given us hearts and minds to love you and to know you. And God, I pray for our church, I pray for myself, I pray for each one here, those watching online, that as we kind of make this pivot point now between what it is to exalt you and in the coming weeks, what it is to be equipped with the truth of who you are, I pray that you would connect our hearts and our minds, what we believe and how we worship. And God, we find comfort that you are seeking after us, you are seeking after people who worship you in spirit and in truth. May that be true of us. May we be a church who loves you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we be a people who worships you in spirit and in truth. I ask this for myself and for each one here, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen.